Beloved, I've uh, cited a dear friend of mine named Robert Dupee a couple times from the pulpit of Santan Bible Church. It's been uh, quite a few years since I uh, cited him as an illustration. Uh, Actually, last time I did it, he was actually here when I did it with his permission. He's a big guy, so he could handle it. In fact, he's a big hulking figure. And by his own testimony, he would tell you that before God saved him, he was a vile, reprehensible sinner. Uh, He was a, again, very big guy, very fearsome-looking guy, if not for the lifted countenance on this side of conversion. Uh, He was a a bouncer in a vile establishment of immorality prior to his salvation. Uh, Robert had a brother named Joe who was a fire captain in the Los Angeles area, and Joe gave his life in his duty when a roof of a building that was on fire that he was in collapsed on him. And there was a big uh, all of Los Angeles funeral at Grace Community Church. Robert was there, heard the gospel, and God saved him. And the reason I cite him is because, generally speaking, sanctification is more, from an engineering standpoint, kind of a ramp process. It's always a gradual transformation of being transformed from glory to glory. But every now and then, there's this huge cliff. There's a, huge, there's a step function where a man or a woman, I mean, we all are radically saved. We are all supernaturally saved, of course. But every now and then, there is a man or woman that is so almost seemingly instantaneously sanctified that there is this radical transformation in their life. In the case of Robert, a radical transformation. He, of course, quit his vile job. He was growing like wildfire. I remember when I was at seminary, he would tell uh, some of the different seminoids, that was my language, not his, that uh, if, they, if they had work they wanted done around their house, he would do it free of charge if they would just pick up the resources as long as they practiced their sermons on him. And beloved, I think of him when I think of this wonderful church in Thessalonica. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. The church of the Thessalonians was a young church, but it was, though only several months old, was a mature church, and it was even a model church. Uh, This church, this group of believers in Thessalonica, Thessalonica with uh, mountains on the north side, the Aegean Sea on the south side, and this mighty Roman highway, the Ignatian Way, traveling right through it. And you may remember the Apostle Paul had sent Timothy back when they were in Athens. Paul had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to get a report, to get some intel as to how things were going with the church. And so Timothy came back with a spiritual report card. He even came back with some specific questions that Paul will deal with later in the letter. And Paul, of course, would have liked to have answered that directly face-to-face, but they didn't have email in that time. They didn't have phones, so he had to write a letter, and that is what we are studying even here this morning. And, beloved, when we look at this letter, I'm gonna, the passage we have this morning are verses 2 through 5, but let me again read all of chapter 1, the 10 verses, because that really sets the opening stage of both of these letters, which, by the way, when we're done preaching through 1 Thessalonians, we're going to jump right into 2 Thessalonians because the letters are only written a few months apart and they really go together, although they are, of course, two different books of the 66 books that make up our holy scripture. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy 
to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now his initial greeting, a short brief greeting in verse one, he finishes it with the normal grace to you and peace. And one of the questions that the Thessalonian believers might ask, one of the questions that we might even ask today is, where in this broken world can I find peace? Where in this chaotic environment is peace to be found? And the answer is in the church of God, in the church of the Thessalonians here in this case. You see, this young but mature and model church is an eye or is the eye of calm and peace in the hurricane of immorality and uncertainty that is swirling around Thessalonica. And we open up the text. We see a pastoral perspective, a perspective from the pastoral team of thankfulness and prayerfulness at the beginning of verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Uh, Verses 2 through 10 is one long involved sentence in the original Greek. And we could think of it as a river of thanksgiving. Uh, The whole aspect of thanksgiving saturates Paul's letter, certainly this one. And it opens up, this river of thanksgiving opens up with this statement, we give thanks to God always for all of you. It is continuous and it's comprehensive. And this is the same way Paul will open up the second letter. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, slightly different but very similar. There he writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows stronger and grows greater. So, beloved, he says, we give thanks. So this is Paul and Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. Paul is the one writing this, or maybe Paul is amanuensis, but Silas and Timothy are in full agreement. It's kind of like a father who might write a letter on behalf of his family. And Paul's concern for them isn't passing and superficial. It's deep and abiding. Again, it's continual 
and comprehensive. It's not sporadic and partial. That's why he says we always give thanks for all of you, every single one of you. And then when we continue on in verse 2, he says, making mention of you in our prayers. And if we think of that first opening phrase that I read just a bit ago as the river of thanksgiving, what we'll see in these verses in these four verses are three tributaries from this river of thanksgiving and this is the first tributary from that initial thanksgiving heart he says making mention of you in our prayers and again this almost duplicate statement just demonstrates that this is the regular and faithful pattern of paul and sylvanus and timothy and again 13 times in these letters he will introduce the subject of Prayer. And beloved, we understand when we think of the Thessalonian church as a successful church, and I actually used that last week. I don't normally describe success or use success in describing things of the Lord, but when I think again of this rapidly growing, spiritually growing, faithful, young, but mature and model church, they are successful not in the way in which the world would define success, but how God would define success. And the key to that successful church, the key to any successful church in any day and age is a praying leadership and a praying congregation. And that's what we have here. So the pastoral team is thankful. They're thankful always for all of them, for the good and the bad and the ugly. And the reality is some of them were uglier than others. Some of them were badder than others. Some of them were gooder than others if you allow a momentary mutilation of the English language. You see, they're thankful for the weak and the faint-hearted as well as the strong. They're even thankful for the lazy slackers that Paul will deal with later in the letter. And this heart of thanksgiving, it made me think of a historical story from Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator. Uh, Matthew Henry was robbed And someone came up to him, a fellow believer came up and asked him how he was doing. And he said, I'm thankful. I'm thankful. And this is what Pastor Henry said. He said, quote, let me be thankful first because he never robbed me before. Fair enough. Let me be thankful secondly because although he took my purse, he did not take my life. Now he's getting a little more to the rub of the issue. Let me be thankful, he continued, thirdly, because although he took all I possessed, it really wasn't much. And then finally, it reaches a crescendo. He said, fourth, let me be thankful, watch this, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Let me be thankful that I am not the robber. Let me be thankful that I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. I am no longer a thief. I am no longer a murderer. That was what was the heart of Matthew Henry. And beloved, it's a reminder for us that we must always be thankful to God in all circumstances for all things. We need to thank the Lord for every breath that we take. And even more importantly, we need to thank God for the salvation we enjoy when we take our last breath. So Paul's prayers here are shaped by the gospel. We're not surprised by that. But also Paul's prayers are shaped by the congregation. And by the way, this is not a prayer the way we might see in Colossians or Ephesians uh, and other places as well. This is a prayer report card. This is Paul giving a report back to the Thessalonians how he prays for him and what he is specifically thankful for. 
And basically the outline that we have for the rest of the passage and sermon this morning is Paul thanks God for three elements for identification, election, and conviction. When Paul thinks of this young, mature, model church, this is what he has first come to mind. And this tells us, this reminds us, this teaches us what we should be thankful for and what is most important. So the first element that Paul thanks God for is identification with the Son. And what we see here going into verse 2 is the second tributary from the river of thanksgiving. Look at what it says. Excuse me, verse 3. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. We have this divine triad, this holy trifecta of faith, hope, and love. In the order he has it here is faith, love, and hope. This is something that Paul brings out as a demonstration of what an authentic Christian life looks like. These are three fruits of grace. This is evidence of God's work in you and God's work through you. Faith, love, and hope. Calvin called verse 3 a brief definition of true Christianity is this identification with the Son. And by the way, because 1 Thessalonians was the first, written, the first epistle written by Paul. Maybe with Galatians, we're not sure, but this is the first occurrence of this divine triad of faith, hope, and love in the writing of the apostle Paul, but he will continue to bring it out again and again in his other letters. Now, what's interesting here is in this initial appearance of this, Paul doesn't link these three fruits of grace with something beautiful, poetic, or ethereal. He connects them and links them with that which is toilsome, difficult, and real. This is what it is facing the rugged demands and challenges of life. And what we have as we look at the way he packages these things here are three identifying markers of biblical salvation. Faith that works, love that labors, and hope that endures. And then we see the phrase, in our Lord Jesus Christ, literally, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That tells us that Jesus Christ, that that modifies all three of these identifying markers. Faith, hope, and love, they all center in him, and we can't have any of them outside of him. They can't exist apart from him. Hence, this is the identification with the Son for which Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are so thankful. So, the first identifying marker is faith that works. These are works that are produced by faith. Beloved, saving faith, this is consistent in Scripture. Saving faith is not inert. It is active. It is dynamic. Look at what he says. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. He's talking about the faith of the Thessalonians that is known in Macedonia and Achaia and even beyond. And now when we think of this combination of faith and works, uh, if we know scripture, this may be new to you, maybe it's uh, old to you or familiar to you. There's no scripture writer that is more emphatic and adamant other than the Apostle Paul that we are absolutely saved by grace alone through faith alone, apart from the works of the law so that no one should boast. Yet for Paul and consistently within the rest of scripture, what we see there is works confirm the genuineness of our faith. Good works. 
You see, faith alone saves, but it doesn't save alone. Faith alone saves, but it doesn't save alone. And so, we can ask the question, how did these pagan, Gentile, idol-worshiping people, how did they get from there to here? What is the dynamic that even is at work here? And you may remember in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, I think this is a beautiful illustration. Uh, Jesus went into a synagogue, and there was a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. And Jesus told him to stretch his hand, his withered hand, out towards him. So the man stretched out his hand full of disease and empty of strength. And Jesus healed it, and it returned back to the man cleansed and full of power. Beloved, in very much the same way, these Thessalonian believers reached out empty hands of faith, and they returned hands full of good works and strength and ability to please the Lord. And by the way, This is a biblical truth that undermines the false accusation of some people in the world that Christianity or Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. No, what we see here, which is again consistent with the rest of the New Testament and even the rest of the Old Testament, is that authentic faith produces works, good works. So, It's faith that works. The second identifying marker as we continue to unpack this is love that labors. So works produced by faith, labor prompted by love. What the text says is, and labor of love. And the word, the Greek word labor here, it's a very strong word for labor. It's the strongest kind of work that requires force. Fatigue even, hardship, exertion, effort, strength, endurance. It's interesting. You might have heard sometimes people will talk about cheap grace. And if we understand biblical grace, there's nothing cheap about grace. In the same way, there's no such thing as cheap love. There's no such thing as cheap love. There's a cost. I mean, it's not easy loving the unlovable. Well, of whom are you speaking, preacher? Me. <laughs> I'll use myself. It's not easy always continually loving the unlovable. Now, it is beautifully true that at times love is spontaneous and without effort. But biblical love requires sacrifice and toilsome labor. And beloved, this is merely an outpouring of the kind of agape love that you may be familiar with. And by the way, this Labor of love is lovely. This labor, this toilsome labor of love is beautiful. It's a reflection of the love of Christ that has been shed abroad in our hearts. And I will say this, it is disheartening at times to see cupcake Twinkies who want to give up at the first sign of trouble. By way of a counter-historical example, uh, Dwight Moody was fully giving himself physically over to the ministry. And somebody came up to him at one point in time and said, you, you, just, you look exhausted. Are, are, you, are you getting weary of your ministry? Are you getting weary of this work? And Moody responded, I'm weary in the work, but I'm not weary of the work. That is a labor of love. And even as we would think of these three fruits of grace, Paul will write of them again and join them together in a list in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. The whole chapter is on love, or at least the latter part, but this is what Paul says there. He says, now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Because, beloved, your faith 
will become sight. Your hope will be realized. And your love that you have because God first loved you will endure. That's why love is the greatest of even these three great fruits of grace. So faith that works. Love that labors. The third identifying marker is hope that endures. This is endurance inspired by hope. Look at the text and steadfastness of hope. Steadfastness, hupomone, steadfast loyalty, fidelity, unswerving faith even in the face of great trials and suffering. The same kind of dynamic that Paul wrote to in Romans. It's steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. Romans 5.3, Paul says, we exult in our tribulations knowing tribulation brings about perseverance, steadfastness. Or when writing to his young protege Timothy from prison awaiting execution, 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, if we endure, if we remain steadfast, we will reign with him. So, beloved, this steadfastness, which is inspired by hope, this sheer dogged endurance, it's not passive. It's active and constant. And we need to make sure we distinguish between the kind of hope spoken of in Scripture and the hope that's in the world. In the corporate world, hope is not a tactic or a strategy in the business world. If you're making a corporate presentation, don't say, well, I hope this. If you have a good supervisor, he'll give you a little bite on that one. You see, our hope, our biblical hope, is not some vague expectation. It is fixed. It is certain. It is definite. And the Thessalonians, you and me, we are just like the Thessalonians, living in the tension between the now and the not yet, between the already and the not yet of God's good promises, looking for the city whose builder is God. That's the hope we have, and the product of that hope is endurance. Henry Drummond wrote a devotional on 1 Corinthians 13 called The Greatest Thing in the World. And I love this quote. If you were to read this quote outside of the context of the love of God and the new life in Christ Jesus, it might not sound or even be so right. But I love it in this context. He said this, quote, You will find if you think for a moment that the people who influence you are the people who believe in you. In an atmosphere of suspicion, men shrivel up. But in that atmosphere, they expand and find encouragement and educative fellowship. It's a wonderful thing, Drummond continues, that here and there in this hard, uncharitable world, there should still be left a few rare souls who think no evil. What a delightful state of mind to live in. What a stimulus and benediction even to meet with for a day. You see, beloved, that's the heart that the Apostle Paul has for the Thessalonians. He believes in them. And so, as I said, this is not a prayer. It's a prayer report card. And what Paul's saying here, based on the intel we got back from Timothy, faith, A+, plus, hope, excuse me, faith, love, A+, plus, hope, A+. Plus. That is the spiritual report card that springs out and produces thanksgiving from Paul. The faith that spawns work. The love that spawns labor and the hope that spawns endurance. J.B. Lightfoot, the pastor and the commentator, said, Faith rests on the past, love works in the present, and hope looks to the future. End quote. 
We could also say it this way. Faith looks back to a crucified Savior. Love looks up to a crowned Savior. And hope looks forward to a coming Savior. And beloved, when we wrap up our understanding of this divine trifecta of God's fruits of grace, we should understand that there is nothing convenient or comfortable about working faith, laborious love, and enduring hope. We should realize that this holy triad describes Christian virtues and Christian character. And these identifying markers must characterize our lives individually by which they will then characterize our life corporately at Santan Bible Church. And turn for a moment over. We'll have a closing application. We'll go over to Hebrews chapter 10. If you were here when we spent 16 months in Hebrews, you might have picked up that Paul did not write Hebrews. But the author of Hebrews did capture this same trifecta of faith, hope, and love. Hebrews 10 verse 22 The author of Hebrews writes, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, love and good works. And then the beautiful application, verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, beloved, this is the identifying marker of identification with the Son. The second identifying marker in verse 4 is election by the Father. And All three of the fruits of grace that we just talked about are lived, worked out, labored out, and endured through, look at the end of verse 3, in the presence of our God and Father. What Paul is doing here, Paul, this Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, this ex-Pharisee, this ex-persecutor of Jewish Christians, when he says, our God and Father, and before that, our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying to the Greek Thessalonian believers, we are in this together. We are one and together. It's you and me. And this is this even unique designation where he says back in verse 1, the church of the Thessalonians. He doesn't say the church at Philippi or the church at Rome or the church in Ephesus. This is the church of the Thessalonians. It's made up of these Greek former idol-worshiping Thessalonians. What Paul is saying is you who were not a people are now a people. You are part of what Apostle Peter will write later, a royal priesthood unto God. That is what he says. Verses 2 and 3, this is where you are now, Thessalonians. This is where you are now, Gilbertonians. But how did we get here? How did they, how do we go from being idolaters to being worshipers? And the answer is given in verses 4 and 5. At the beginning of verse 4, we see the third tributary from the river of thanksgiving, knowing brethren beloved by God. And even that short little phrase there, it has both a manward and a Godward relationship. Brethren, 28 times in First and Second Thessalonians, Paul 
cites this word brethren more frequently than any of his other letters. He's talking about the spiritual brotherhood. There's a vital oneness, male and female, young and old, in the body of Christ. It's the same kind of dynamic that he does in 2 Thessalonians. For example, chapter 2, verse 13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. So that's the manward relationship, but the beloved by God, that's the Godward relationship. That's the deep, deep abiding love of God that is resting on the Thessalonians, it's resting on you and me individually and us corporately. Now, let me pause before I go on here. Let me make a general statement about the beauty of the body of Christ. I am so blessed that here at Santan Bible Church that we have a number of brothers and sisters who don't necessarily subscribe to every jot and tittle of our extended 18-page doctrinal statement. And that is part, again, of the beauty of the body of Christ. What I try to do, in other words, in these areas of, okay, we're not quite there yet, necessarily in terms of the sovereignty of God and salvation or end times. Uh, The reality is right here in verse 4, we have a very clear, definite statement about God's sovereignty and salvation. Regarding end times, 1 and 2 Thessalonians have been called the eschatological epistles, because it's saturated with references to the future. About 25% of 1 Thessalonians deals with what's coming in the future, and about 40%, roughly, of 2 Thessalonians does the same. Now, beloved brother and sister, I desperately try to never carry any hobby horses into the pulpit, but rather just let the text speak for itself. So for my brother, and by the way, in both of these two areas of God's sovereignty and salvation and end times, I could think of uh, people that have been part of our body, actively thriving and serving for years, and I can think of more newcomers. So what I say, if you're not quite there with us in terms of God's understanding God's sovereignty and salvation, hang on. And if you're not quite there from the end times, hang on when we go through the rest of the books. But here in verse 4, when we think of the subject of election by the Father, Apostle Paul is not writing a theological treatise like he will do in Romans 9 through 11. Right here in the beginning, and by the way, again, this is a pretty new young church, several months old. Paul doesn't say, well, I'm not going to deal with a complex or challenging or controversial subject. He comes right out of the gate with it. And what he does here in verse 4 is he flies right past all questions and challenges. What about free will? What about human responsibility? What about evangelism? What about prayer? Now, he does answer some of those questions either right before in verse 3 or going forward. But in the statement, he just makes a simple statement of God's election as fact. You see, Paul knows God loves them, and Paul knows God elects them. Look at what he says, his choice of you, literally your election. Uh, The Greek word is eklektos. The Greek word is the word from which we even get our English word election. And by the way, this is the exact same dynamic. Earlier I read the first part of 2 Thessalonians verse 13. I'll read the entire verse. He says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. God has elected you from the beginning for salvation. Now what the Apostle Paul is saying here, he's not saying that this is a church that's elect. 
He's saying this church of the Thessalonians is made up of elect people. It's the same dynamic that Paul will later write to the church in Rome about, citing as way of example Jacob and Esau. In Romans 9, verse 11, Paul writes, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice his election might stand not because of works but because of him who calls and by the way beloved I don't know if you knew this but God's children that's you and me if Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior we're called the elect in the New Testament almost three times more often than we're called Christians Uh, eight verses three if you want to do the math and so beloved Here, the way the Apostle Paul brings it out is we should understand that the doctrine of election is vital to our understanding the doctrine of the love of God. It's meant to encourage us, to challenge us. We love because he first loved us. And the sovereign love of God is undeserved. It's unmerited. It's sovereign. It's unconditional. And this was the same under the Old Covenant as well as now in the New Covenant. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, we'll read these words, from God through Moses to the nation of Israel and to the individual Israelites. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you, but because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. Because the Lord loved you. It makes me think of the monologue by Portia, in Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. When she's making an appeal to a judge, this is what she said. Though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and if justice be served, we would all be condemned, but because of love, but because of love. Beloved, what Paul is bringing out here in verse 4 is the great triumph of God's love, the love that reaches down to the fallen enemies of God and saves us, rescues us, redeems us, and adopts us into the beloved. This is the same love that spread the feast, that invites to the feast, That same love brings you to the feast. The same love that spread the feast, invites to the feast, is the same divine sovereign love that brings you and me to the feast. Beloved, in the counsels of God, eternity past, he loved you and he set his favor upon you. Now, beloved, God's world-preceding love is a life-defining love. God's world, he loved you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. God's world-preceding love is a, in the past, is a life-defining love in the present, right here and right now. And one thing from a human perspective, why would the Apostle Paul be so concerned when writing to the Thessalonians both here and as we saw in 2 Thessalonians with this doctrine of election? Well, If we go back for a moment to Acts chapter 18, remember Paul in Acts 18 is in Corinth, and this is from the location from which he writes 1 Thessalonians. And and, and Paul is here in Corinth, and up to verse 8, 
Uh, Paul, what Paul has in recent history is he was in Philippi, he was run out of town, jailed and run out of town. Then he was run out of Thessalonica. Then he was run out of Berea. Then he went to Athens and had very little results. Now he's in Corinth in this, this city that's just saturated with wickedness. God speaks to him in a vision. Look at verse 9 or listen, Acts 18, 9. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, don't be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. Watch this. For I have many people in this city. So the Corinthians at this point are still all pagan, lecherous, immoral people. But God tells Paul, I have many people in this city. I have many sheep. But that's why the Apostle Paul has this doctrine of election in his heart when he's writing to the Thessalonians. And I would just say this, the theological question boils down to, am I saved by the love of God or am I saved by my choice, by some spark of righteousness or cleverness or intelligence or something else? Beloved, the doctrine of election produces humility, dignity, and security because your salvation was promised and even secured in eternity. And dear friend, If you're here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, understand this. God does enable his child to believe, but God does not believe for you. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you confess with your mouth and believe on him, you will be saved. That is the promise of God. So, Identification with the Son, election by the Father. The third identifying marker is conviction from the Spirit. Conviction from the Spirit. And we can ask, by way of transition, we can ask a good question, how did Paul and Silvanus and Timothy know that the Thessalonians were loved by God? To know that they were elected, they were chosen by God. Did he go around, lift up their shirts, and see the little E stamped on their stomach? No. I I borrowed from Spurgeon on that one. No, how does he know that? Paul knows because, and Paul thanks God for how the gospel came to the Thessalonians, how the gospel was received by the Thessalonians, and then verse 6 and forward, how it changed the Thessalonians. Look at verse 5. The apostle Paul says, for our gospel, for Paul, how do you know that we, the Thessalonians, are loved and chosen? For, Paul says, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What Paul is saying here in verse 5 is this is the pastoral team's message of life and the pastoral team's manner of life. Their message of life, again, look at the beginning of verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Beloved, the word of God is the mother of the church. The gospel gives rise to the church. The church takes the gospel and exports it, but the church is what gives birth, excuse me, the uh, gospel is what gives birth to the church. And the gospel didn't just parachute down into Thessalonica. It came in the message and the lies and the words and the witness of this trio of pastors. We do understand, I mentioned before, the KGB agent that got saved just by reading the words of God. 
But in most cases, how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? And that is what Paul does. And by the way, Paul describes doing and endeavoring to do exactly what I endeavor to do. What we endeavor to do in all of our teaching ministries at Santan Bible Church, namely the exposition, the explication, the application of the divine word of God. And I love, if we for a moment take just one step back and we look at verses 4 and 5, what do we see here? We see a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. And the gospel did not come to you in word only. There is a quote, uh, famous, perhaps you've heard it, perhaps you've not. It's attributed to Francis of Assisi. It's an apocryphal uh, attributing because it's doubtful that he ever said that. But the quote goes like this. Preach the gospel. Use words if you have to. Nonsense. There is no gospel without words. The gospel cannot be shared without words. And the gospel, when those words, when the words of the good news of Scripture are shared, empowered by the Holy Spirit, it'll be convincing and compelling. He says, look at the rest, or continuing on verse 5, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. So it had words and in power and the Holy Spirit. You see, everyone who heard Paul preach, everyone who heard Silas, Silvanus preach, Timothy preach, understood these were men with a message and men on a mission. And I like what Dick Lucas, he's an English uh, preacher. He's got like the most stilted, formal, all those English, you know, you can possibly imagine, but he's solid. I love listening to him. He told the story of when he was a newly converted teenager, and he went to a church that was supposed to be an evangelical church, hoping to hear a powerful message of the Word of God. And the way Lucas said was, he said all he heard was the beauty of the daffodils. It was said with passion, but it was certainly said without power. You see, Paul preaches, Paul speaks of the power of the word preached in their midst. And what's interesting, though, is when he's talking about the evidence that gives him the absolute certainty of God's love and God's choice, it's not the word preached, it's the word received. And with full conviction, in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, assurance, certainty, confidence. Now, to be sure, the primary and immediate reference of this is the full conviction of the pastoral team. But it didn't stop there. That conviction, that conviction from the Holy Spirit was received by the Thessalonians, rebounded back by the Thessalonians, and then resounded out by the Thessalonians. So that was the pastoral team's message of life. And then he wraps up at the end of verse 5 with the pastoral team's manner of life. The two wings of the airplane, word and witness. Look at the end of verse 5. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Remember that some of the, there were some of the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica that got saved. And there was a large number of God-fearing Gentiles and leading women. And as a large number of the God-fearing Gentiles and leading women began to follow Christ, and it impacted the power, prestige, and purse of the remaining leaders in the synagogue, they ran him out of town. And what we have is the gospel enemies tried to discredit Paul and his team. And Paul will even deal with this in chapter 2, verse 10, where he says to the Thessalonian believers, 
you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Devoutly, uprightly, blamelessly. Notice he doesn't say perfectly. That doesn't mean that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were without sin. It doesn't mean that they didn't blow it every now and then. But by God's grace and mercy, the man of God, armed with the word of God, can live a life before the Lord in fear and trepidation that can even be described devout, upright, and blameless. So there must be words and there must be works. It was lip and life, but it was not life without lip. It was not example without exposition. Both are necessary. And I must say this, in the context of the strong exhortation, the strong encouragement, this river of thanksgiving here, and even the passage we read in Hebrews 10, 22 through 25, to think that we're going to proclaim the gospel without being vitally plugged into a solid church is simply put, ridiculous. You see, Paul makes it clear that we need, I need, I, Clay Miller, need the communion of the saints. We need fellowship. We need shared lives to live the Christian life. And we need the Christian life to proclaim the Christian message. My beloved, in conclusion, turn for a moment to Luke chapter 24. It's a beautiful reality. This power, this conviction from the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment of a promise by Jesus Christ right before he ascended. We read of the ascension of Christ in Luke chapter 24 and in Acts verse 1. In Luke 24, in verse 49, Jesus makes this statement to his disciples. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then turn over to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So we go over some X amount of pages, two books, but it's the same day, the same occasion. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke also records that Jesus, and actually let me do verse 7 and 8, that Jesus said, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Beloved, one remotest part of the earth was Thessalonica and the power that came upon the church in Acts chapter 2 is manifest in this great river of thanksgiving from Paul to the believers and to you and me even now. And I'll say this, beloved and dear friend, the doctrine of evangelism does not make, excuse me, the doctrine of election does not make evangelism unnecessary. When we consider here in the context, it makes it absolutely mandatory and essential. It is through the preaching of the gospel and the receiving of the gospel that God's secret counsels are revealed. And dear friend, if you are here this morning not following Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is a decision upon you. You may say, you know what, I, I'm not going to make a decision. I'm going to deal with this next week. You just made a decision. And the kind of decision I'm talking about here is the same decision in the New Covenant as it was in the Old Covenant Israel. 
Joshua, Joshua 24, verse 15 said, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether it's the pagan gods or the God of the Bible. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Beloved, that is the call from God, and it is the gospel power that enables you to do that. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the beauty and the wonder of your word. Thank you that Paul's a real man writing to these real people, men and women that are very much like us. And we thank you, Lord, that it's the same way of salvation from the old into the new. It's the same path of obedience, the same following after you, Lord, as our Lord and Savior, as those dear Thessalonian believers, though young in the faith, but mature and ripe and growing. Help us, Lord God, to excel yet more in all these things for your glory, for our joy, for our ministry of love to one another, and for our witness to this lost and dying world. Help Santan Bible Church to be an eye of calm and peace in the hurricane of immorality and uncertainty swirling around the Phoenix area. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.